Today, I'm going to take you on a trip to the other side of the world. My guest is based in Hong Kong and brings a very practical view of security, how to sell the value, how to secure the digital world. We're going to be talking about the use of security and messaging at financial companies in Asia. And we're going to get into some examples in Africa and even spend some time digging into the future of mobile computing. That's important because as we'll see, what's happening in those markets now may very well soon affect ours. Just a heads up that the audio quality on this episode is a little rough. I guess that's one of the perils of international podcasting. In any case, I think you'll find it still worth a listen. I'm John Pryle. Welcome to the Impact Podcast. Why don't you start things off by telling our audience who you are? Yeah, so my name is Cedric Janot. I'm the founder and the CEO of a company called A Privacy, and we provide digital security for banks. So, primary all the communication between client and banks is what we do, and we sit at the intersection of digital security, so encryption compliance, but also seamless user experience. We believe people should not have to see the security. And if you don't see it, you're going to embrace it. Now, you, you obviously in Asia, Asia clearly has really led the world in terms of messaging. Talk to me what you see before we even get to fintech and kind of the banks. Mm-hmm. Just tell me what you see happening, say, in China with WeChat, in Japan with Line, and, and the type of usage patterns you're seeing with people and these new messaging platforms. Yeah, I think in Asia, you, you see a lot of innovation, especially in, in sectors like payment, uh, obviously fintech, but, but many other sectors where innovation is really coming out of lack of appropriate solution in, in the market. So they're not in Asia innovating to have the best. They're innovating because of they don't have anything. And obviously, when you're hungry and you're trying to fix a problem, you, you at some point, are going to get pretty good at it. When you say payments, if you could help me a little bit. So again, I, I and I'm going to apologize because mm-hmm. I'll bring a North American point of view here. So I think of payments as either my vendor has stored my credit card for me and I'm nervous because there's hacking mm-hmm. going on, or I'm doing some type of payments with an Apple Pay or a Samsung. Is, is it the same view of payments there? Or is, it, is it slightly different? Except that it's even more backward. So as in, in time. So you're assuming that everybody has a credit card. In China, only 3% of people have a credit card. Obviously, it's going to grow. But the challenge is if you only have 3% of people who have a credit card, well, e-commerce is going to be a big challenge because you need a way to pay online, right? And so that's why those those guys that invented payment system that were mobile first, kind of like online first, in order to drive the, the online business. So one of the examples I like to give is you say, oh, well, sure, but if there's no credit card, we can issue a credit card. Yeah, not quite. Because to issue a credit card, you need to have a credit rating. And the reason you need to do that is if you give someone a credit card with an amount that is too low, they're not going to use it. If you give an amount that is too high, you know, they're just going to be overdraft and you're going to have a lot of like, you know, money going out the door and not coming back. So in China, typical Chinese innovation, they say, we can't use the model from North America. Let's look at social behavior. So if I look at your Facebook, Twitter equivalent in China, maybe I can map what kind of person you are and I can get a credit score that allows me to profile, you know, what your limit should be. Turns out that happens to be a far more innovative and practical use for China. So that's why wow. I mean by innovation in China is not coming to North America, but it came out of it out of necessity. It's funny because we've read about social profiling for credit scoring. And, and of course, I always viewed it as something that was augmenting 
additional data that existed. And in this particular case, it's really the primary data that was being used to drive some of this credit analysis. That, that is quite different and I hadn't really thought about it in that way before. Uh, so let's take it then. This is fantastic. So we've got so many things going on. So let's talk, let's get your view now of what the security requirements are in both Asia first. And then we'll, say, we'll, and we'll see if we can extrapolate those security requirements to the US. So let's talk about security. Yeah, so security obviously is a core what we do. Uh, we provide encryption and tracking services for the financial industry. So being Canadian, most people ask, why are you in Asia? And, and obviously, we started in New York. So the reality is we didn't start in Toronto because there's, there's uh, only a handful of banks. And Canadian banks are usually pretty conservative, so we started in New York. The reason we moved to Asia is because the speed of adoption of technology is far faster in Asia. And the scale of the deals is far bigger. So the, the, the example I'd like to give is um, if you get a million user uh, on your first contract in New York, I mean, you can be really proud of you. If you get a, a million user in your first deal in Asia, you probably did something wrong just because the scale is so big. So that's the reason why we do what we do in Asia. Now, the cybersecurity market, I mean, there's a lack of talent globally, but there's a lack of talent, especially in Asia. And it's a, it's a combination of things where education system and, and I mean, there's just a, a much bigger need in Asia because of lack of talent and lack of expertise. At the same time, Asia has given tech half of the world's population and the combination of mature market and emerging market. So you really have an addressable market and playing field that is extremely large. And so for the same amount of effort, you get, you know, 10 times the revenue. And so that's why we're there. And tell me why security matters uh, to someone that's living and breathing in this messaging world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe they have more. So I don't know the degree of hacking and target breaches and Home Depot breaches that, that hit in Asia. So what's the pulse of needs for security and then why, what drives, and then we'll get to why the banks are doing it, obviously. But I kind of want to get the general feel for security as well. So overall, I will say security is very important. Nobody will disagree with you that it's, it's a you know, top five priority. Uh, the challenging part is to get people to pay for it. Everybody will agree that, yeah, it's important, but nobody will want to pay for it. So, so in our business, the way we do it with bank is we don't sell IT security. We actually sell security products that are used as business enablement. So in the case of messaging, uh, and, and we can talk about messaging and how prevalent it is in Asia, instead of selling you, I'm going to secure messaging. It's more, hey, if you have secure messaging, you can do account opening directly on WhatsApp and WeChat. So you don't have to have people going to the branch. So that's digital enablement. That's, that's new services to your customer. The way we do this is beauty. So we, we package it as you should not buy security because you have to. You should buy security because it's big, good business to do so. Interesting. So you mentioned that without it, no bank would actually step on account opening. If you can explain for our audience a little bit you know, why it's not trivial for even a U.S. bank to just give you your statement on a mobile device. I understand there's, there's, real, there's a lot of underlying needs to make sure that happens correctly. Absolutely. So be, before I cover the why it's not, I think it's important to differentiate that in Asia, people are far more tech sophisticated. Why? Because the consumer world and the consumer app are really, really prevalent. So in their personal life, People have come to the using WeChat and all those like Dropbox and super easy to use kind of application, one click, two click, very user centric. And then they go to the bank and the bank is like stuck like 30 years ago. And so there's, there's a very big disconnect in terms of people's expectation when they go to the banking services. 
In North America, this is true, but not as true. So in the case of statement, statement being confidential information in banking terms, most regulator in Asia will want some kind of security around it. Let's say you have to send it securely from the bank to the customer. You have to prove me that the right customer got it. And all those kind of challenges that really involve security. But because of the bank is lacking the, the proper technology or they have a legacy system, most banks will actually mail it to you. So you're like, okay, that's bad, but that's, you know, mailing is okay. Well, except when you have a billion customer, mm. because now the cost of mailing becomes really prominent. And so in the case of the e-statement, which is one of our offering, we don't sell secure e-statement. We sell cost saving. I can reduce your paper cost by 80%. I can save you 350 million US. It's more around how do we make the bank a better bank and serve our customer better? versus what kind of security algorithm are we using? I understand. So whether it's in Asia or in the US, it's still the same model in terms of the, you've got a couple of real key technical hurdles to overcome to convince the banks and the regulators that you're doing the right things, for sure. What's your view, and I was talking to our security expert in the team, of key management and how you manage keys? And is that something that's uh, unique to a privacy, how you do it? So in, in, in the traditional security model, uh, most vendors use something called public key infrastructure. And PKI, the main challenge is, is as the amount of information grows and, and, and the more you perform encryption, the more you have keys to manage and the cost of managing those keys is prohibited. In the case of a privacy, our main advantage is that we have the ability to dynamically generate keys. So we don't have that, that management cost because we don't have to store keys. So the main advantage is, obviously, if you try to hack the system, well, there's nothing to steal because there's no key. They are mathematically generated. And the second advantage is we can increase the level of security at the same cost. For example, uh, a traditional vendor may encrypt every single file of a person with one key. In our case, we may encrypt every single file with a different key because there's no cost for us to do that or we can encrypt every single page of a document with a different encryption key, which dramatically increases the level of security while making it simpler for IT to run on the other side. That's great. Now, in terms of then, as once you've got you know, all these different keys there, what do you do in terms of auditing and what do you provide to the vendors in terms of, again, reassuring them they've got the right patterns of traffic mm -hmm. and details that you require for their regulators and the like? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I think you rightly pointed. We are a cybersecurity company, so encryption is what we do, but we do encryption tracking and more. And we really sit at the intersection of compliance, which is meeting regulatory standards, security level, meaning it's used by banks, so it has to be good enough. And user experience, because at the end of the day, those communications are touching the customer. So you need to make it easy for the, the bank's customer. So it, it, the, on the encryption, once we've encrypted data, we can, we can add policies to it because we use a data-centric model. So some of the policies will be, for example, having the ability to retract a document or an email. And, and by retract, I mean, I don't mean the outlook, please recall the message. I mean, remotely destroying a piece of information, even though it's been downloaded on, on, on the recipient's computer. So think in an MNA scenario, when the deal is over, you can actually retract all the information so you are sure that nobody can keep a copy. Things around preventing copy, preventing download, preventing access from certain countries. Like in banking, I can access a document in Singapore, but I cannot access it in Hong Kong. So it helps with cross-border issues. So there's a lot of rules that we can add on top of the security that makes it really uh, niche and to the point for business use cases in banking. 
And you're, and I, I have a personal passion on privacy issues. And obviously you've got a tremendous amount of fine-grained control. What do you provide both to your customers or their customers in terms of uh, whether, it, I, and I, again, it was from some of your materials, geofencing or, or access mm-hmm. rights. Is it always the control sits with the banks or are you able to actually push that control downstream and let a, a user begin to have some control over of information? That's a, that's a very good question. So philosophically, I believe this, a privacy's mission is to secure the digital world. So we think everything should be secured but the impact of the user should be negligible. They should go on and the security should be done behind the scene. So because we are B2B business primarily, most of our technology is managed by the bank. However, in some cases, the bank gives this technology to the customer. And so I can think about a private bank use case or certain insurance use case. They may want the customer to have the ownership of the information because that's a good value proposition from a banking standpoint to say, we have a data-centric model. You are responsible for your information. I'm giving you the way to secure it, but you control who has access to it. So our, our standard platform is obviously controlled by the bank and a lot of control is centralized there. But you can, on occasion, push those things downstream. So you can imagine a, a ultra high net worth for a private bank that can retract his email uh, to his banker or that can activate some geofencing. So his information and his portfolio and his position is not open from Mexico or from other countries. The control actually is beginning to go down and you're gonna, you do have the ability to give more fine gain control down to, to the hands of the users. Absolutely. Wow, that's very cool. Now, we always talk about this new world of conversational business, uh, Every vendor, whether they're banks or not, has to focus on omni-channel and recognizing that mobile is a channel and obviously there's all the other prior to mobile channels. But within mobile, there's a million different channels, whether it's going to be Facebook mm-hmm. him or, you know, and there are already some tools that are out there encrypting, uh, Signal, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you sit across that ecosystem of all the different types of players? And do you tell a bank that the answer is one channel only, or do you try to let them do whatever their users are looking for? Or because you're in a particular country, there's always one major platform you play on. Yeah. So a privacy's position is we are the security expert and we're here to enable channels so the bank can communicate with the customers. I'm not deciding on the channel nor do I want to design a channel. The customer is right. And most banks based in Asia have presence in multiple countries. So if you go to Thailand, line is number one. If you go to China, it's WeChat. If you go to Singapore, it may be WhatsApp. So the way we position ourselves is as a security service on top of existing channel, whatever the channel is. So number one, it's good for the bank because most likely they're going to have to carry it to several. And it's good for us because we don't want to be dependent on a certain platform because if the security is only valid for a group of people, then we're missing a lot of other people. So we want to be the neutral guy and we're really playing the, you decide what you want and we will come secure it for you. Now, do you see this expanding then? Are you going to, is your view to stay within the banking world and expand globally that way? Or do you see other key industries, for example, in Asia, that might be an easy second target, for example? So I think one of the challenges we have in security is, is everyone needs security. And so as a, as a fast-growing but still relatively small company, you have to pick your battle. So the way we define our market is we, we do what we know and we merge to other markets that we understand. We started in banking in private bank. From private bank, we moved to 
retail bank, investment bank, and now we've moved to insurance. And those have similar characteristics in terms of they are regulated, they are customer-centric, there's always a multi-channel mobile angle. So we, we only expand to verticals that we understand, but our physical expansion is, is actually quite natural because when you deal with tier one, tier two banks, though if you get one country, they'll expand it to other countries. So we may start with one country, but we quickly get a regional contract and then a global contract. So a little prediction for the future. Uh, it's very clear all the you know, Apple is making their investments in the world of mobile. I look at the, my banking application. I use Chase and they turned my large, giant 13-inch screen into basically a web, in, you know, to the same screen I have on my iPhone, which by the mm-hmm. way, I don't like because I'm used to having more data on my screen, but I get it. So your prediction for the future, what's your view of how far mobile can go? Well, I think the writing is on the wall. It's going to be mobile first and, and multi-channel, and that's not going to change. The reason, the, I mean, there's already more mobile user than, than desktop user, but, but you have to look at demographics. If you look at Southeast Asia, if you look at Africa, you know, the vast majority of the population is less than 20 years old. And those people, they started with a smartphone day one. So the, the whole, um, I think, desktop, laptop, it's going to be eclipsed by mobile. It doesn't mean that you, you know, you're going to be on small screen forever. You could have a big screen. You know, the same way if you use WhatsApp on your phone, you can, you can actually project it to a bigger screen. And then you have a slightly different interface. So I think there will be bigger screen, but it will be controlled from your mobile phone. Interesting. Now you mentioned Africa and I did want to, I thought about that earlier. I wanted to mention on that. So my son spent a couple of years in the Peace Corps in Africa and I was astounded on how sophisticated money transfer was. And I guess mm-hmm. I have the word money in quotes because it wasn't money. It was SMS and it was mm-hmm. minutes basically that were being yeah. bought and they were being transferred back and forth between people. Do you see that as a as a thing that's going to expand further in terms of kind of different, and I, I don't want to go down the world of Bitcoin unless you think it's necessary, relevant, uh, but what, how do you think this is going to change things? So Africa is a, is, is a kind of personal passion for me because I grew up there as a kid and I've, I've visited many countries on the continent. And for me, Africa and Southeast Asia have a lot of similarities. The reason people started uh, to trade minutes or as we call it airtime as currency is because there was a lack of digital alternative. And so if I, we all have a cell phone, we all use prepaid, so minute was a, a common kind of currency. And so if I can't see you, I'm going to do that because I cannot physically give you the cash, or maybe it's too dangerous to carry cash. So I think th- this is what, once again, out of necessity, people found solution. And, and, and PESA in Kenya was a, a perfect example of something in the payment, digital payment executed right. I think the rest of the continent, it's going to happen. It's a matter of time because now the technology is, is, is there. It's at scale. And you, and you can look at some of the Asian players now looking at Africa as an ex- expansion market. They're not going to North America. They're going to Africa because demographics. And same kind of like the same thing that happened in China 20 years ago or 15 years ago is now the same in Africa. So I think it's going to be very big and it's definitely going to be mobile first multi-channel. And whoever captures that market is going to make a lot of money. And it will be multi-channel. That, I think I agree. Oh, That's very sure. interesting. Yeah, so there's, there's no doubt, you know, messaging is here to stay. Messaging is going to grow. The, co- the thought of security, you're gonna, you want to get to the point where security is not no longer a thought of or an afterthought. It's just built in. And, and, no one, and there should be, the degrees of worry and angst should be lower. Is, is that a fair summary? That is correct. We believe 
that people should use the application that best suit them. So if, you know, Google built Gmail, Gmail is a very good email platform. Who am I to tell people, no, no, don't use Gmail. You should use mine for security reasons. Now, we believe that you should use Gmail and we, the security people, should find a way to secure Gmail in a way that is totally transparent to you. So, you know, extrapolate five years. In five years, you won't send a secure email. You'll send an email that will be secured. And that's, that's the difference. And actually, in five years, you probably won't send an email. You just send WhatsApp messages. But the analogy is really the security should be behind the scene and people should have the best customer experience uh, that, they, that they deserve. You know, that's a great way to close this podcast. Thanks for joining me today, Cedric. This has been great. For the Impact Podcast, I'm John Pryor.